Welcome to Kings River Life's Mystery Rats Maze podcast, where we share with you mystery short stories and first chapters of mystery novels read by local actors. This episode features the mystery short story, The Bell Hope, written by Peter DeCellis. It's read by local actors Maxwell DeBoss and Brianne Vogt DeBoss. The Bell Hope originally appeared in the Malice Domestic Anthology, Nancy Pickard, presents Malice Domestic 13, Mystery Most Geographical, in April 2018, and was a finalist in the 2019 Derringer Awards. How much do you know about sunken treasure lost at sea and shipwrecks? The young lady asking me the question occupied the solitary visitor's chair in my cramped walk-up office. She leaned forward, her brown eyes enthusiastic and impossibly large. Before I could say, not much, I'd get seasick just holding a glass of water. I decided as she was probably on the verge of unleashing a whopping tall tale, I'd launch a small fib of my own. I know a little bit, I said. After all, a good Boston private eye is supposed to know a little bit about everything. And in fairness, like most locals, I knew that storms, shoals, legendary buccaneers, and even World War II Nazi torpedoes had claimed countless ships off New England's coast. My visitor, who introduced herself as Miss Eliza Marie Evangeline, lowered her voice and leaned forward a tad more. The story you are about to hear is confidential, completely secret. Only a few people ever knew what actually happened, and most of them died horrifying deaths. Just horrifying! I'm willing to tell you as much as I'm allowed. I have business partners, you understand. But only if you promise you won't reveal anything I say to another soul. Not a soul! I guess she was all of 19 or 20 years old, short brown hair, no makeup, jeans and a gray t-shirt under a black blazer, a modest diamond engagement ring, but no other jewelry. Except for the excitement about storytelling that danced in her eyes, some people might describe her as forgettable. I promise, I told her, not a soul. I settled in, keen to hear whatever wild account came next. Okay, she said. This is the story, at least as much as I can tell you. In 1939, my great-grandfather hopped a steamship to Europe to help a Frenchman he knew from the First World War. The Frenchman, who cured my great-grandfather's trench foot when the two men served on the Western Front, was working as a bookkeeper for three shady but prosperous shop owners. The shop owners were concerned that another great war might erupt in Europe so they decided to convert their savings into the then-popular St. Gaudens $20 U.S. gold coins that were circulating in Europe and then transport the coins to America for safekeeping. They feared only an American citizen would be able to leave France and enter America with the coins. And how exactly do you know all this? I asked, trying hard to keep my voice free of both skepticism and amusement. Her hand and wrist made a quick motion through the air, as if writing. My great-grandmother kept the Frenchman's handwritten letters to my great-grandfather, as well as a letter from my great-grandfather himself sent to her before he left Europe. I discovered the letters in a blue hat box in her closet after she passed away. I found her diary and some old newspaper clippings in there, too. I'm a sucker for a weird yawn, and I wanted to see how far she'd push her story. So I nodded encouragement for her to continue. By the time my great-grandfather arrived in Europe, the Frenchman and the three shop owners were in complete panic over the impending war. They'd bought $1,020 St. Gaudens coins, a small fortune at the time. 
Normal travel arrangements had become impossible, so my great-grandfather hid the coins, over 60 pounds of gold, in the bottom of a steamer trunk filled with cotton towels, ginger tea, and toothpaste, from the shop owners, you see. And then he bribed a sympathetic Moroccan stevedore to let him stow away on a tramp freighter, the SS Bell Hope, bound from Marseille to Boston. I swear, it's all in his letters. Quite a tale, I said. She turned as serious as a bank robber. Wait till you hear the next part. I nodded again, surprised that I hadn't burst. The story ends in supreme tragedy. According to the newspaper clippings I found in the hatbox, as the Bell Hope made for Boston, she encountered a brutal hurricane-force storm. The captain, trying to stay away from the highest waves and the strongest winds, steered for the clean side of the storm. But the hurricane shifted direction and the ship sailed far off course. On the second day, the exhausted captain lost steering way, and the Bell Hope was struck by a monster wave. She drifted, foundered, and sank off the Gulf of Maine. The ship then broke apart, and her hull and cargo scattered across miles of seabed. Every life was lost. Eliza Marie Evangeline paused to give a sad shake of her head. And as far as anyone knows, the Frenchman and the three shop owners all died in the Second World War. A supreme tragedy, I agreed, and so many years ago. Her impossibly large brown eyes somehow grew even larger. Exactly the point. Today, those thousand long-lost St. Gaudens coins are worth over a thousand dollars each. I tried to test her. Well, except the coins have been immersed in salt water for nearly eight decades. You're confusing gold with silver or copper, she said. Seawater doesn't damage gold. Undersea treasure hunters have recovered gold in perfect condition after centuries in seawater. I've studied this carefully, everything about it. I'm no daydreamer. I'm an ambitious, self-motivated entrepreneur. I've taken three accounting classes and three oceanography courses. I started a high-potential business with two partners who are expert divers. We've invested in software for charting and mapping, and we use special diving equipment. Trust me, we know what we're doing. I couldn't resist a smile. Just imagine. She continued, her eyes practically sparkling now. Over a million dollars in rare gold coins lost in a hurricane because my great-grandfather, a man I never knew, was a loyal friend to a sly Frenchman and a wily smuggler who tragically perished on the high seas. And you want me, as a private investigator, to help you find this million dollars worth of gold coins? Lost somewhere at the bottom of the ocean amid a miles-long trail of hurricane-strewn debris from a nearly 80-year-old shipwreck? Her face turned serious again. Don't be ridiculous, she said. We already found the coins. Rumbum! The wiry man teetering at the bar thundered. Another rumbum! As the tavern door closed behind me, the bartender carried a bottle of dark rum and a mug of draft beer toward his lone customer. He poured a hit of the rum into the wiry man's empty shot glass and replaced his dead draft with the fresh mug. And what the hell was I doing here in a run-down bar on the coast of Hancock County, Maine? Well, I wasn't searching for sunken treasure. At least not exactly. It turned out my new client's declaration that she'd Already found the gold coins was based on a text message from one of her business partners, who also happened to be her younger brother, Donnie. The text read, wet for souvenirs today, which she interpreted to mean her partners had successfully made the dive, gotten wet, in order to 
4, recover the coins, souvenirs, the same morning she'd received the text today. She also confided to me the text exclamation point might be especially meaningful. But she'd gotten the text two days ago and hadn't heard from her brother since, or from her other business partner, her 20-something fiancé Jason Kennett, who'd recently finished a hitch as a Navy diver. No word from either, despite her texting them and even calling their phones. She'd also called the Hancock County Sheriff's Office and the county hospital, but learned nothing. Although she wouldn't admit it, I knew Eliza Marie Evangeline was worried. She hired me to find Donnie and Jason and help them in any way I could. So I traced their path, driving my battered but reliable decade-old Jeep Cherokee up I-95 north to Route 1 to arrive down east among the craggy inlets and remote lighthouses of coastal Maine. The wiry man drinking the rum bombs, who on closer inspection looked like something a discerning sea monster found inedible and spit onto the shore a hundred years ago, eyed me as I approached. You're from away, he said, not from Maine. I tried to ignore him by signaling the bartender for a draft. When the barkeep set my brew in front of me, I gave him a good tip and said I hoped he could help me locate some friends visiting the area. I hadn't found any place open in the tiny seaside village except the tavern, so I decided I'd start making my inquiries here. And the underwater photos and diving memorabilia decorating the walls told me it was a fine place to start. My friends are two young guys who drove up from Boston to dive near Blood Rock Island. I said to the bartender, I'm not sure where they are now. Blood Rock, the rum bomb man hollered in my ear. Nobody dives, Blood Rock. He downed his rum, he followed it with a gulp of draft, and his voice fell to a hoarse whisper. The current that churns Blood Rock Island is a killing machine. Blood Rock's ruby red water will drag you to the bottom of the sea and murder you cold and dead. I looked at the bartender. Blood Rock is a dangerous dive area, he said. There's a nasty downcurrent that can pull divers way too deep to survive with ordinary compressed air tanks, and Blood Rock's water is toxic from the same algae that turns the island shore red. The water is red from the blood of lost sailors, the rum bomb man shrieked. Dead from a murdering sea. The bartender heaved a sigh and leaned toward me over the bar. I hate to tell you this, but I heard that a boat cruising past Blood Rock pulled two divers' dead bodies from the water late this afternoon. Maybe your friends changed their minds about where to dive. Well, I hope so. Donnie and Jason wouldn't have changed the dive site, of course. They were convinced they'd find a million dollars in gold coins there. But something else stuck in my head. I excused myself to the far end of the bar and called my client. You mentioned Donnie and Jason using uh, special diving equipment, I said. What kind of air tanks? They're breathing a specialty gas called Trimix, Eliza Marie said. The dive's too deep for ordinary compressed air or nitrox, especially considering the strong downcurrent. People think we're just kids, but we know our business. Did you find out something? I'm still working on it, I said. I couldn't bring myself to tell her what the bartender had just told me. I returned to my draft beer, got a motel recommendation from the bartender, and I left him with the rum bomb man. But before heading back to Route 1 in the motel, I confirmed that just a single boat rental shop in the area would have accommodated Donnie and Jason for a deep water salvage dive. 
Eliza Marie's business records identified the same shop on Donnie and Jason's itinerary, so of course I planned to visit it. I also learned that Blood Rock Island, like many small islands off the main coast, was not part of Hancock County, but fell instead within Maine's so-called unorganized territories, with no municipal government and no police department. That not only explained why my client's phone calls to the county sheriff and hospital had proved unproductive, it also meant the boat rental shop, a local diver's hub, might be the best place to begin scoping out who'd recovered the two bodies today and whether anyone knew the victims' identities. Could the dead divers be Donnie and Jason? I ran through some possibilities. If, as the bartender speculated, these were accidental deaths from diving too deep using compressed air tanks, the bodies probably were not Donnie and Jason, two experienced divers using special air tanks because they knew about Blood Rock's dangerous depths and currents. Then again, the locals seemed to avoid Blood Rock, even worn outsiders away from it. So how many two-people diving teams would have been in those waters at the same time? Of course, if the dead bodies were Donnie and Jason, treasure hunters on the trail of a million-dollar score, everything I'd learned suggested their deaths probably weren't diving accidents. Probably not accidents at all. The next morning, I gulped takeout coffee on an hour-long ferry ride that left Hancock County's rocky coastline miles behind, just the first leg of my trip to the boat rental shop, which wasn't located on secluded Blood Rock, but on the larger but still remote Snowin' Island, known to locals as Snow and Iceland for its harsh conditions during Maine winters. I felt grateful for the balmy summer day and supposed diving would be impossible here during weather-bound winter months, from the Snow and Island ferry landing, a dawdling half-hour taxi ride deposited me at last on the boat rental shop's rickety wooden pier. How the hell would I know who drowned off Blood Rock Island? The boat shop owner shot back at me. Nobody from here dives Blood Rock. Well, can you tell me if you rented a dive boat to a couple of younger guys from Boston, Donnie Evangeline and Jason Kennett, I asked. That boat, right there. He pointed to a moored aluminum hull cruiser that looked about 30 feet long. A ladder attached to the side reached down to the water, and a contraption I assumed was a winch hovered above the deck. I noticed a nasty spatter of brownish maroon stains on the boat's hull next to the ladder, just above the waterline. Corrosion? Algae? Blood? I nodded toward the boat. When did Donnie and Jason return it to you? I asked the shop owner. They didn't he said. They never showed up to take it out on the water. The boat shop owner referred me to the two-person Snow and Island Police Department, part of the patchwork of local government agencies that provided services in various parts of the unorganized territories. The burly snow and cop on desk duty turned my inquiries back to me as questions. You say you're here about the two divers, you family? I represent a family member, I said. But you say you're a private eye, not a lawyer? Yes. If you're not family and not a lawyer, I can't help you. Well, can you at least tell me whether you identified the victims as Donnie Evangeline and Jason Kennett? Back here! Back here! Two voices down a hallway sounded in unison. Oh, those two divers, the cop said. I thought you were here about the dead two. Uh, for the two back there, bail is $200 each, cash only. I handed him 400 which left my wallet empty.
It turned out Donnie and Jason hadn't arrived at the boat rental shop because after they'd ferried to Snow and Island, they rented a car, drove at full speed past the local cop's radar gun, and hadn't been able to pay the fine. The cops confiscated their phones and other belongings at the police station's jailhouse, but let them use the landline there. Jason called his bank to check whether his balance would cover the fines. It wouldn't. Donnie called in a pizza order because all they had here was a bologna sandwiches. Here, meaning jail. The cops then announced the bad news that Donnie and Jason were only allowed one phone call each and jailed them until a bail bondsman, a brother-in-law to one of the cops, could ferry over in a few days. When I asked Donnie about a souvenirs text to Eliza Marie, he said it was just a way to psych up the enthusiasm for the dive they'd planned later that day. I also learned the two dead divers were out-of-state boaters, briefly jailed in the adjoining cell on drunk and disorderly charges. They must have overheard Donnie and Jason talking about the treasure dive, but the boaters had no business diving blood rock and paid with their lives. Two days later, Miss Eliza Marie Evangeline was back in the visitor's chair in my Boston office. I want to thank you for everything, she said. And I swear you'll get reimbursed for the bail money. I swear it. And the balance of my retainer is due, I reminded her. Not a problem, she said. My business partners are going back to Maine to retrieve the coins so I can pay you in gold as soon as they return. Or I can write you a check now, but you can't cash it for a couple of weeks. Whichever way works for you. Hey, what would work for me is... I be bet I know exactly what you're going to say, and I already took the liberty of discussing it with my business partners. We didn't budget for two trips to Maine, of course, so we need additional funding. And yes, are open to having you as an investor. An investor? Absolutely. We're willing to accept the $400 and the rest of your retainer as an investment in our business. You wouldn't be a partner, you understand. But as an investor, you'll be paid back with interest and dividends. Or you can keep your money invested with us for future treasure dives. Keep my money invested for future treasure dives? She leaned forward. How much do you know about the dread pirate of New England, Dixie Bull? I could only shake my head. She leaned forward a tad more, her brown eyes shining. The story you're about to hear is completely confidential. This reading of The Bell Hope was produced by Kings River Life and directed by Lori Lewis Ham. You can learn more about the author on his website, shortwalkdarkstreet.wordpress.com. For more podcast fun, tune in to Cozy Inc. Podcast for fun interviews with your favorite cozy mystery authors. Featuring cozy mystery author Leah Bailey as the host, Cozy Inc. Podcast releases new episodes every Tuesday. Learn more on their website, leahbaileyauthor.com slash category slash cozy dash ink dash podcast. Our theme song, The Blues, was written and played by Kevin Mebley. Check out Kings River Life Magazine's websites for more mystery, local theater, animal rescue, and so much more. KingsRiverLife.com and KRLNews.com. Now, we'll be back next time with another mystery short story or mystery first chapter. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter to get special interviews with the authors of the podcast stories. And follow us on Twitter to keep up with everything KRL, at Kings River Life. If you enjoy this episode, please rate or review it, as this helps make us easier for others to find. 
So until next time, this is your announcer, Jim Tuck, wishing you a life full of mystery.